At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to you want to talk to someone but not just anyone alma is there to help you find the right fit visit helloalma.com therapy 30 to schedule a free consultation today that's helloalma.com therapy 30 95 percent of the people who have negative opinions about our show don't watch it or never did they're just going off of what somebody said because the people that say it's a show that only talks about race and it only talks about politics and it doesn't talk about sports and doesn't give us the news, that's bullshit. Because I've been there for every single one of those motherfuckers. And I'm telling you, we were at the front of the news cycle every day. Whereas most of the shows that come on before us were discussing yesterday's news. I think you get labeled as, oh, you guys have that shtick. Well, I never wanted to have a shtick. I wanted to have a personality, and there was a big difference. And we got to the point, I think, with, if you say the whiff or a home run or whatever it might be, that was just in-house to entertain us. But when we realized outside of ESPN, we're sort of the, oh, you guys do those things, that's your shtick. It made us recoil a little bit because I didn't want to be known for that, and neither did Keith. And then every other anchor who came in thought, I got a great catchphrase, man. I can be a sports center anchor. And we're thinking, oh, my God, what did we just do? Mike Tirico and I had an intervention with him in a bathroom at the Estes. All it was was really out of love was that you're so talented and you're so good. If maybe you ease back a little bit and maybe fit a little more into the standard traditional norm, then maybe there would be even bigger and better opportunities for you out there. And he politely listened and dismissed it because he never changed. At that moment, I'm 24 years old, and they had me record the sign-off announcement for when we go off the air Sunday night, which I did on this little 635 EV microphone, which that was my first day of work, September 9th, 1979. said, so come back in. We need you to do two shows tomorrow. We need you to do the College Football Highlight Show and Sports Center. So my second day of work, Monday, September 10th, get in there at 10 a.m., and I left the building at 2 a.m., and that was my first day at work. And that basically sent the template for the next 38 years. I mean, sometimes a sad Keith is a happy Keith. What you can't see on a podcast is that my eyes are going to bounce out of the sockets at any moment. Well, you're not arguing with me. I'm trying to be polite. You know, I can't wake up one day and not be black. Being black and being in America, that's a part of my existence and the fiber of who I am. All right. And so some days I wish I had the option <laughs> that I could say, you know what, today I don't feel like being black today. <laughs> I wish I had that option, but I don't. So there are things that I see, wrongs that I see that just affect me on a deeper level because of that experience. Once I got there, I just wanted to just try and fit in, to be honest with you, and, you know, keep my ears and eyes open and my mouth shut as much as possible. I was there at the end of an era and the beginning of a new one. And by that I mean the end of the era was, I remember getting there and I saw on a bulletin board every day they had the ratings of the 6 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and overnight sports centers. 
in the ratings compared to what CNN was doing at the same time. <laughs> I know this sounds foreign and Neanderthal, but it's not that long ago. Sports Center was a gathering place for people all over the country. Whoever had the illegal dishes and could watch us in Canada or wherever else. You didn't have talk radio. You didn't have, obviously, internet phones. You didn't have, other than your local team, you might not know who won the Seattle-Kansas City game and you're a big baseball fan and it's late August. You know what I'm saying? So when we went on and did a half-hour show, people go, are you kidding? A half-hour just sports? I mean, Walter Cronkite was just doing 30 minutes of news. No star in the ESPN galaxy shines with brighter brand recognition nor emits a warmer glow of familiarity than does SportsCenter, a show that serves as the network's flagship and its warhorse. SportsCenter debuted on September 7, 1979, the same night that ESPN launched. It has known numerous errors, level jumps, torrents and potholes, reimaginings, and re-reimaginings. Much like Saturday Night Live, it has managed to survive endless cast changes But unlike SNL, its value to the audience has arguably declined. Even so, SportsCenter is probably still the most dynamic element at ESPN. As smartphones, other technologies, and new competitors have threatened its existence, ESPN executives have refused to fold the tent, desperately trying new configurements that would help it profitably survive. And while SportsCenter's story reflects many of ESPN's tensile strengths, it also mirrors several of its irksome weaknesses. At times, the show has raced ahead of proverbial curves. At others, it has loped along behind. With that, let's forge ahead into the valley of hosts and highlights, figure out whence it came, where it is now, and what the hell lies ahead. This is Origins, ESPN, Episode 5, SportsCenter. It had all started, oddly enough, with hockey legend Gordie Howe. The year was 1978, and Bill Rasmussen was the communications director for the Hartford Whalers. I had heard of Gordie Howe since forever in my lifetime. You know, we met Gordie and we met Colleen, and she turned to me and she said, and your job is to take Gordie out and play golf with him. So my first introduction to Gordie Howe was three straight rounds of golf on golf courses he had never seen, and he shot three straight 75s. He was just an incredible athlete, just a, a very unassuming guy and a lot of fun to be around off the ice. Colleen appointed me the executive director of Howe Enterprises. She had visions of building uh, other outside business interests for him, and for some reason she picked me to work with him. And I was there uh, really right up until Memorial Day weekend 1978 when the infamous phone call came from Colleen. As phone calls go, this one was a whopper. Simply put, if it hadn't taken place, there almost certainly wouldn't have been an ESPN. And it's more than likely there wouldn't have been a 24-hour sports network in Bristol, Connecticut. I was on my way to play golf. And uh, on the way out the door, the phone rang. It was Colleen. She said, uh, I don't know how to say this, Bill. I, I didn't want to do it this way, but I've got to catch a plane. We don't want you back, and neither does Howard. Give him a call next week. Goodbye. And off she went. So that was the end, and I never spoke with Gordy again after that. At the time, less than 20% of all TV households even had cable. But in the year to come, an almost comedic course of events would lead Rasmussen and his son Scott to obtaining a 24-7 transponder on RCA's SATCOM-1 and a sizable and game-saving investment from, of all places, Getty Oil. On July 18, 1979, 
Former NBC Sports executive Chet Simmons was announced as president of ESPN. Simmons, to his credit, soon thereafter summoned Scotty Connell from NBC. George Grand, who had done, among other duties, work on the pre- and post-game Giants football coverage on WCBS, was the first anchor of SportsCenter. Chet Simmons was the guy that he had unbelievable foresight as to where the industry was going and where ESPN would be going. And he dealt, he was Mr. Outside. Uh, he would deal with the Sharks and fight with them uh, day in and day out. Whether At that time, the Sharks were ABC, NBC, and CBS, who certainly were not welcoming to ESPN when we started. And Scotty's strength was production and dealing with people. And the two of them provided an unbelievable combination towards not just the blueprint of ESPN, but an unbelievable combination of how to help everybody get through what was a, a questioning time. And uh, we started, we didn't know whether it was going to last three weeks, three months, three years, or three decades. We just knew we, we'd have some fun doing it. ESPN first went on the air at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on September 7th, 1979, and SportsCenter quickly took center stage. The first result Grant announced was Chris Everett's victory over Billie Jean King in the semifinals of the 1979 U.S. Open. It was chaotic. It was crazy. The only thing that was operational was the set that we were sitting on. I remember looking through the glass into the control room, which was really just a room for people to sit in because everything was coming out of uh, remote trailers that were in the, the parking lot, one of which was because of a rainstorm that it hit was on about a 45-degree angle because it had sunk in the mud. And uh, I remember looking through the window, and here's Chet Simmons, Scotty Connell, Bob Polito, Joe Giaquinto, Bill Rasmussen, Stu Evey, all looking through the window. And it was like they were looking, they were in the maternity ward, looking at a newborn baby being born. Uh, that was the look of anticipation. So there was a look of anticipation, but it was also a look of, you're flying by the seat of your pants. I remember um, uh, Bill Creasy had come up from CBS in New York and produced the opening show. And we had a live feed set up in a number of different areas, and most of them weren't coming through. And we just kind of sat and waited. And as the moments ticked away to the start of SportsCenter, uh, Bill Creasy said, well, here's the deal. We don't have either of our remotes, but we're ready to go. Good luck. <laughs> All I can say is good luck, good luck, good luck. That was the last I heard from him. When we hit the second break, I looked at Lee and I said, well, you in favor of a football playoff system? He said, yeah. I said, well, so am I. So we flipped the coin to see who'd be opposed to it, who'd be against it. And we, we debated that for a couple of minutes. So it was that kind of a night, but I think it was a forerunner of what we would experience. It was pretty special. Here's Bill Rasmussen. Well, uh, Lee Leonard said the first words, and we introduced George Grand that he did the first sports center. And the game that we went to was the Slope Pitch World Series Softball Championship from Louisville, Kentucky, featuring the Kentucky Bourbons and the Milwaukee Schlitz brought to you by Budweiser. And... <laughs> That brought a big chuckle in the control room because I was standing right next to the Darcy McManus vice president who has, was in charge of the Anheuser-Busch account, and he said, I thought we had an exclusivity. I think one of the keys to the success of SportsCenter was that Chet Simmons and Scotty Connell fully believed in SportsCenter, and Chet said it very often. He said, look, we don't have the NBA, the NHL, Major League Baseball, so on and so forth today. Someday we will. Someday we'll be on a par with NBC, ABC, CBS. But today we don't have that. But what we do have is something they don't have, and that's SportsCenter. So there was a belief that there was a purpose to SportsCenter from the beginning. It wasn't like it was window dressing. Following ESPN opening night, the fledgling network brought in some new faces to appear on SportsCenter. Bob Lee, a recent graduate of Seton Hall, 
had most recently served as public address announcer for the New York Cosmos. A month later, Brown University graduate Chris Berman arrived from a small station in Rhode Island. Scotty offered me a job on Friday in 1979. New Jersey Public Television offered me a job on Saturday. I had 18 hours to make up my mind. And it was an easy call back then to stay for the same money without moving and being on the air in New York and Philly on weekends as a sports anchor. But I had just come out of a situation where we had a startup that had gone very well in local cable. And I said, well, let's do this again. So now it looks like a no-brainer. Well, back then it was a no-brainer on the other side of the coin. I'll give you the task of describing a young, just out of Brown graduate named Chris Berman. What was he like back then? You know, he wasn't a whole lot different than he is today. He was always effervescent. He was very enthusiastic, extremely confident. And if you recall, he began using nicknames on the air. He was willing to stretch the boundaries. And he understood that sports were entertainment, not just a bunch of statistics. 1979 and 80 was two tin cans and a string. A lot of the midweek baseball games were not on TV. There weren't pictures. Live shots, we didn't have money for that. If the planes landed at Bradley, which is the airport in Hartford, we had some same-day stuff for you. If they're not, you'll see it tomorrow. (laughs) So we're a gathering place. And at the same time, at 11.30, 2.30, 6 o'clock, it was important because you also weren't proliferated with all of it during the day. Like at 2 o'clock, you're at work. Did you hear that so-and-so got traded? No, you didn't hear that. You weren't cheating looks at your computer, because there weren't any, to get sports news while you're supposed to be doing something else. I actually take my hat off to people, because I was one of them in the 70s. You have to work to find out, did the Giants or the Dodgers win the night before? Because it's not in the morning paper, and we have no way of finding out, you know? So we were often the first to report it, at least on a national basis. We didn't have rights to the Super Bowl or the World Series or the Stanley Cup, the NBA, but we covered all of it. And I'm proud of that to this day. Here's Keith Oberman. My memories of watching SportsCenter in the time when I was at CNN, which was 1981 to 84, was simply, my God, we are not the worst thing covering sports. I mean, ours was embarrassing. We had people like... Lou Dobbs' wife, Debbie, who walked off in the middle of a sportscast once because she lost her place in the prompter, got up and left, co-anchoring a half-hour sportscast, left the other guy to read the whole thing because she just got so lost. And then when the, when the boss, Bill McPhail, took her off and said, you just do the short-form shows, Dobbs went in and threatened him, tried to have a fight with him. And that was Bill McPhail, Lee McPhail's brother, and Bill was probably 70 at the time, and Lou was probably 35. So anyway... My memories of Sports Center were just like, poor Chris. I mean, the set, I mean, where is he doing this from? It looks like a ventilating duct without any ventilation because he's sweating like a stevedore and his, like his mustache is glistening with sweat and he's not, and there's clearly there's no teleprompter. And what time? It's 1.26 a.m. and they just started and he just said it's the 1.26 a.m. edition of Sports. Never on two nights in a row. From a Sports Center standpoint, we brought in, you know, Bob Lee, Chris Berman, Tom Meese. You know, Lou Palmer was part of our family, too, in those early days. Guys who were just tremendous people, not just young people who were in the process of learning the business. I didn't believe in the teleprompters. We had no teleprompters as long as as I was at SportsCenter and I ran it. So you had to write your own scripts, and most of them were even written. There was mostly ad lib. You had to uh, do your own research. You had to do everything on your own. So every department went the same way. And I'll never forget, we had one meeting. And Bob Polito was talking about all the people he had in the tape library. 
And one of them, he said, hey, we got this one guy who's really good, and he's worked in Sports Center and worked in the tape library, and we think he's a rising star. And his name was George Bodenheimer. And Chet looked at me and said, do you think he's ready for the big test? And I said, I think he's ready. So what they did was, the big test was to be the guy who would pick up Dick Vitale at the airport and drive him back and forth every week when he came in to do the basketball show. And lo and behold, uh, George Bodenheimer and Dick became close friends. They remain close friends today. And, of course, you know the rest of the story, and that is that George Bodenheimer rose in the ESPN family to eventually be the president of ESPN until he just recently retired. Here's George Bodenheimer. Is it possible to overestimate the importance of Sports Center to ESPN in the early 80s and 90s? No, I really don't think you could overestimate it. I mean, I truly look at Sports Center as the backbone of the company. Played a huge role in, in building the brand in the 80s and the 90s. You know, there was simply no other television product like it. And if you look at literally the first five minutes of ESPN being on the air, September 7th, 1979, when Lee Leonard throws to George Grand for the first ever Sports Center segment, he articulates how, you know, the goal of the show to be here every day through interviews, video, analysis of reporting on what's going on in the world of sports. And ESPN's been doing that nearly going on 40 years now. And Sports Center has been there every day, every holiday, every weekend, every big day in sports doing that. The day-to-day programming of the newly launched network was rarely live and more than atypical. While it's fair to say the network's all-sports promise was dutifully kept, an early viewer may have wondered simply, why? Nevertheless, the network delivered groundbreaking coverage of slow-pitch softball, bowling, billiards, Irish cycling, Australian football, racquetball, and of course, Munster hurling. On an episode of Late Night with David Letterman, Letterman would poke fun at ESPN's more obscure coverages, creating a top 10 list of the network's off-season sports, including Fat Guy Hacky Sack, Shirts and Skins Speed Typing, and Amish Rake Fights. Despite the sometimes questionable programming surrounding it, SportsCenter remained live. Here's future NFL Today host Greg Gumbel, who was a member of the growing ESPN family. To me, it was a no-brainer. I had pretty much had my fill of local news. And sports just isn't a very big priority in local news. And ESPN presented me with the proposal that instead of doing two and a half minutes of sports at 10 o'clock at night, why don't you do an hour with us? And, uh, you know, that's after an hour at 7 o'clock and then another hour at 11. And, look, if you're a sports fanatic, it's intriguing. And um, I flew out and took a look around. And it certainly was rough, to say the least. You know, you'd park in a parking lot that really was just a mud patch on the side. And God help you if it rained, especially when you were on your way in. There was a story of one of our directors who drove up in a rainstorm, stepped out of his car, and stepped into a mud hole up to his waist. And, uh, you know, being the, the kind of guy he was, he climbed out of the mud hole and went right into the studio and started directing a show. Here's Bob Lee. There were so few people. Everybody had to do everything. You know, if you didn't possess a full suite of skills, it was a very difficult place to survive. I mean, you had to write the show, you had to present the show, you were doing your own makeup, even technically, like, you know, that shot doesn't look good, and can we just move the camera over there? I mean, you, you really 
and the volume of stuff we're turning out. No local was doing that. And the, and the three-letter networks, their sports divisions were only on the air the two days of the weekend, for the most part, for three hours an afternoon. So there was nothing ever before in sports television like this, and it was succeeding. We were so close to it, we really couldn't tell. I guess success there was not folding, and they're still getting you know paychecks they cleared every two weeks. But we weren't 24 hours yet the very first year, except on weekends. So weekdays, we'd sign on at 6 o'clock with SportsCenter. And SportsCenter was the show that would basically run between the events and time the network out. And all the evening programming, none of it was live for the most part. It was mostly on tape, so you knew how long the shows go. I mean, SportsCenter was scores. Very, I mean, if you look at the graphics now, it looks like Flintstones television. And it was highlights taken off the local United Cable box, the cable box that we were able you know, and so basically we were restricted to Mets, Yankees, Red Sox, anything else that might have popped up, or WGN or WTVS might have been on the air then, and we're pulling those highlights down. And that was about it uh, for the first, better part of the first year. Every couple years you get much more recognized. I remember George Brett, uh, 82, big pennant game, came up, you know, he introduced himself to me, which I almost keeled over, and then, and he, well, how come the Royals don't have more nicknames? How come other teams have more nicknames? Like, George, you're taking batting practice here, you know, it's like a big game here, you know, and I could go on and on with the story, so that's 82. Here's my late wife, Kathy Berman, and I on our honeymoon at the Parthenon, and, and somebody recognized us, like, what? That's 1983 now. By the time 87 and the NFL came to us, then you knew we were on the map for sure. Okay, guys, it's settled. We're flying out to L.A., we're staying at the Parachute Hotel, and then we'll go to the beach with some parachute towels. Arjun's road trip. I love it. Let's go. (laughs) Except Bob Basil will probably have us working on the beach as well. (laughs) Uh, We can bring our laptops, I guess. The good news is that we won't be able to record because the waves will be too loud because I want to up front and close. That's ambiance. Come on. Oh, ambiance. That's good stuff. We should do an Origins chapter live from the beach. (laughs) We should do the Origins (laughs) of the beach. With our parachute sheets. Right. But Origins the Beach Boys and have them come to us. We have a little kit set up. Okay, hanging out on some parachute towels, and uh, I'm sure the Beach Boys have nothing better than to just <laughs> drop by. Hey, Brian Wilson, why don't you come and uh, hang out on the beach in Venice, and uh, we can record while we're sitting Listen, there. Jim, you throw parachute sheets in there, and I'm sure you'll be able to get anybody you want. Oh, there you go. Oh, my gosh. There you go. <laughs> Attention, Brian Wilson. We have a deal for you. <laughs> All right, so if you can't make it to Venice Beach or to Portland, Oregon, be sure to visit parachutehome.com slash origins. You'll get free shipping and returns on Parachute's comfy bedding. That's ParachuteHome.com slash Origins. On February 6, 1981, Rhonda Glenn joined SportsCenter, making her the first full-time woman sportscaster for a national TV network. Gail Gardner arrived in 1983. I was at WJZ in Baltimore. And unbeknownst to me, someone in the Washington area sent the tape to ESPN, and I didn't know about it. They called me, and they said someone sent them a tape, and we'd like to talk to you. So I said, fine. I didn't even know what ESPN was, really. I had no idea. So I went there, and, you know, they had no women there at all. It was all men. And I came there, and they said, well, you know, we'll have you do these little updates, which they used to do like every hour, little cut-ins from Sports Center. And I said, okay, fine. 
And then I showed up and they said, well, actually, we want you to do our half-hour NFL show. Huh? <laughs> I said, huh? You know, by yourself with a producer. So basically, they threw me, you know, into the fire. And, you know, I did it. I thought it came out really well. And what I think sold it for them was that they actually got some positive calls. They were thinking, oh, my God, you know, we'll hear from all the men. And they hate her and up, but it didn't work out that way. So they got some positive calls, and they said, okay. So I said, great, I'll come and work at ESPN. And then, you know, people would ask me, uh, where are you working now? And I would say, ESPN. You know, and they'd go, what, CNN? And I'd say, no, uh, ESPN. A lot of women, you know, would write in, would write letters and say, thank you, because it's something I, I wanted to do, and I didn't know it could actually happen. And I get very little bad feedback, which I thought was amazing. You know, men weren't calling and, you know, saying, get that woman off the air. She sucks. They weren't saying anything like that. At some point, they said, we're going to cut SportsCenter to 15 minutes. It was originally a half hour before we went to an hour. They said, well, it's going to be 15 minutes now because it's just not that important. And it was that way for a little while until... They got some feedback, like, what are you doing? That's the only thing we know, is that show. SportsCenter has had many eras since uh, the beginning, and I'm just wondering, when did you first recognize a sea change in terms of SportsCenter's prominence? When did it get to be a bigger blip on the radar screen? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, clearly, I think, as we acquired more and more different properties, the whole network became more prominent. But I, I think it was, it was the rival of John Walsh. Here's John Walsh. I was a fanatical sports fan all my life. From the time I was a Phillies fan as a kid, I always loved sports. I went to baseball games with my father. I watched the Friday night fights every week in front of the TV at 10 o'clock Friday night. It was great. So when ESPN launched, I was paying attention to it. I was editing Inside Sports at the time. And by the way, the Inside Sports test issue went to press on September 9th, 1979. Two days after. Two days after this crazy 24-hour sports network launched up in uh, Bristol, Connecticut. So while I was at Inside Sports, TVs in the office were tuned to ESPN. I was watching SportsCenter all the time. That was I always thought I was cheated every night when... The sports cast and the local news was three minutes. And if there was a snowstorm, it was two and a half. So I liked it. I liked the show. I liked what it did. And uh, Steve Bornstein called me and he said, you know, we just got the rights, college football, NFL. Why don't you come and do a consultantship? And I did a consultantship. And I had ideas about SportsCenter. I had a smattering of experience in television. But I was a print guy, and I had run a sports magazine. I'd been sports editor of two newspapers, and I felt that I could handle sports because I was a sports fan, and I thought I could handle storytelling because I love stories. Here's Steve Bornstein. The job was SportsCenter. I mean, that was his audition. It was clear to me that the economics of ESPN 
we're going to be, we're going to have a bunch of lost leaders that bring attention to our network, and that would be some of the higher profile sporting events in college football, college basketball, professional football, and other times professional hockey and professional basketball. That would bring everybody into the store, but where we will economically be successful is selling our news, sports news and information programming, of which the cornerstone was SportsCenter. So I had a big financial obligation to get the ratings of that and the journalistic credibility of that to be solid so that we could, in fact, deploy our financial model. When I got the job and started to work and interviewed everybody, more ideas popped into my head about what Sports Center could do and what Sports Center could be. But I always felt it could be the place where all sports fans would gather every night. So it wasn't necessarily a transformation. It was, let's make an improvement here. Let's make an improvement there. And some well, people- wait, but you did engineer somewhat of a paradigm shift in terms of, let's just talk about in terms of the way you line things up at SportsCenter, because that was quite a departure from what was going on well, before. Well, that, that was just the easiest decision to make in a minute, just to say, wait a minute, I want to find out about the firing of an NFL coach, and I'm not going to get it until I get the final score of the last place Kings and uh, the seventh place Pacers or whoever. And it just didn't make any sense. Why would you do that? Now, I was naive about television, and it didn't really occur to me, well, you know what? If you just give the top stories and you got these fans that are really devout NBA or NHL fans... They're going to stay for the rest of the rundown later on in the show. So all you have to do is tease it, and you'll probably get them to stay. Right. By the way, it wasn't such a small idea because some people thought you were People thought crazy. it was nuts. Yeah. Believe me, I know I spent many hours, God bless my wife, because I stayed in Bristol those first six months, seven months, and I went in at eight in the morning, and I went home at midnight. And I watched and lived. And so every rundown, every producer, I talked it over with them. Why are you putting this in the Bs? Why are you putting that in the Cs? Didn't this deserve better play here? Why don't you mix this up with that? And so there was a period. And, you know, the competition at CNN, Rick Davis and Jim Walton, they thought we were nuts. They thought that was like the silliest idea that you wouldn't do all of the NBA in one place. So, yes, there was controversy over it, that's for sure. But I was convinced it was right. There was more form to the show. It was more logically laid out, produced, thought through, and written. And I think by then, I think you really got a sense that this was a show that, more than just having its own identity, had a cultural identity. So many writers, Jim, did, hey, I've got a great idea. They sell their editors, are we good for 150 bucks for a hotel room? I'm going to watch 24 hours of ESPN and write a piece, a column about it. I mean, that was done incessantly. So we, we were a great novelty coming on. We had the college basketball uh, championships and the tournaments. and So the, we were there on the network landscape and on, on the radar screen. But Sports Center, I think, by the, by the late 80s, was right there with it as 1A as a brand. I seem to remember you telling me that you started working out in the mornings on a treadmill, and that was the reason why SportsCenter went from 30 to 60 minutes. 
Did I get that right, Steve? That story is really sad to say is accurate. I started to get more aggressive in my training regimen, and that's when I would watch Sports Center. It would be in the morning, and it would recycle too quickly. And so we came to I came to John. I think it was there at the time, and said we're going to make it an hour. And then that just fit in the whole strategy, which is you know we'll bring people into our department store with these high-profile events, but we're going to make all you know the profit and the operating income on the lower cost to produce sports news and information. Here is Charlie Steiner, who is the current day radio play-by-play announcer for the Los Angeles Dodgers and joined ESPN in 1988. On a particular Friday, first week of May of 88, Steve Bornstein, who was then president of ESPN, was living up in Connecticut, and he walked into a liquor store in Norwalk, and there was a liquor salesman behind the counter named Larry, and Larry knew what Steve did. Larry had read in the paper that his favorite sportscaster had just been fired. Bornstein had no idea who I was. He was a TV guy in Connecticut. I was a radio guy in New York. Well, Larry, unbeknownst to me, is selling my talents to Steve, who had just hired John Walsh, who had come aboard at ESPN to redesign and redirect SportsCenter. The following Monday, Bornstein goes to the office in Bristol, asks John, do you know who this Steiner guy is? He said, yeah. And he tells John about the conversation he has with Larry. About three weeks later, I get a call from John and said, would you like to come over to ESPN and audition? I went over, auditioned, I guess, in June, and it was hideous. I had no idea you actually had to look into the camera with the red light on. (laughs) But it worked out okay. What was your learning curve like? I would do the 2.30 a.m. Eastern show. It was awful. But after each program, I would go home with this video cassette, pop it into my VCR, and I would watch it critically. I felt like I was kind of a quarterback looking at plays unfold and what was working and what wasn't. And it took a while. And then by Christmas time, I went out and had lunch with John Walsh and Steve Anderson. And they said, how are you liking it? And I said, well, not a lot. And they said, why? And I said, because I've never thought I would work 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. in Bristol, Connecticut at pushing 40 in my life. And they said, well, you're not going to have to worry about that anymore. And I thought, well, geez, now I'm about to get fired. They said, no. Come February, we want you to start anchoring the 7 p.m. Eastern Time show, which I did for the next 12 or 13 years. With? Well, with initially a fellow named Bill Patrick, and then Bob Lee, and then Bob Lee and Robin Roberts. We were just three friends coming from three disparate points of view and three disparate places where we grew up and how we looked at life. But when we were together, there was something that just worked. You know, Robin, oh my God, yeah, who wouldn't want to work with Robin? Of course, the irony is Charlie and I are the closest to friends, even though, you know, our political beliefs are 180 degrees apart. But Bob, didn't you get the memo because um, only liberals are allowed to work at ESPN? I'm sorry. Well, that's true to a large extent, but we won't even get into that on this phone call. (laughs) (laughs) But I just remember the thing, oh, geez, okay, that'll be interesting. But Charlie and I really haven't done anything. I'm not so sure this is going to work out. Well, of course, like so many things, I was crashingly and deliciously wrong. 
And, you know, we started with this hour show in the evening, which didn't have the benefit, if you will, or the lifeblood of fresh highlights for the most part. And it forced us to do some writing, in Charlie's case, overwriting, if you're listening, Charlie, <laughs> and, uh, and explore issues and do interviews. And it was a great experience, a great time. Talk to us about the difference between doing a six or seven sports center versus an 11 o'clock sports center and what that meant for you. Well, not to mention the difference in lifestyles. The 11 o'clock show is just a killer, especially if you've got kids. I mean, the hours you don't get home until one, it's a mess. But logistically, you're living on the edge. You're living at the mercy of the highlights. There's not necessarily, even the show was totally highlight-driven, and they're coming to you blind, and there's not a lot of time for introspection or deep, you know, paragraph-level thinking and news. There were exceptions, certainly, but for the most part, that was the case. The six, we knew every day coming in, we had to have some cards up our sleeves. We had to have some topics that we had in mind from the day before. We needed to have a cover story in the works, a kind of a longer treatment, maybe with a the guests coming out of it, and it, you know, it gave us the opportunity to develop things. So it is the two very antithetical cultures. One of the most prominent pairings of early Sports Center anchors was Chris Berman and Tom Meese, who tragically drowned in 1996. Tommy was so self-effacing, uh, underassuming. I was fortunate enough to do a ton of shows, ton of Sports Centers in the 80s with Tom. Uh, many on the overnight, the first four years we were there, he and I were two of the original seven, the Mercury astronauts, if you will, as far as sports and anchors go. And look, everyone needs, whether it's an ego, whether it's self-assurance, whether it's, you know, a certain level of confidence to get on the air and do it and excel, which he did. I smile every time I bring his name up and he's been gone over 20 years, which is hard to believe. Was there a night just so memorable that you can recall it for us now? Well, it wasn't supposed to just be a sports center night, but it turned out to be that. I mean, I, I think of being at game three of the 1989 World Series, and I was out there anchoring sports center baseball coverage. And of course, that was the day of the earthquake. And I was five rows in the top of Candlestick Park. It remains my favorite park because it kept us alive. It was that well seismically constructed. And we were on the air within 18 minutes, and we were the nation's only live eyes from the ground there for the longest time. And everybody instinctively that I was working with that night knew what to do without, you know, there were no cell phones and there was 89. Everybody, you know, from all over the massive land space of Candlestick Park got back to the truck. We had power because we had a diesel generator. We're on the air almost immediately. Uh, working with whatever resources we could pull off the satellite, trying to tell the story of what happened. This was a bigger story than sport. It was a story of an incredibly horrible event. I mean, 60-some-odd individuals ended up dying. And everybody just instinctively knew to marshal that in the moment, and that for several days. And didn't have to be asked, didn't have to be told. That's the quality of people that I work. In a microcosm, that was the ESPN Sports Center experience for me. So, Chris, I've been listening to audiobooks since Books on Tape, which isn't meant to give away my age because I was only three years old when I started. But audiobooks are the rage, and Audible is the leading provider of premium digital content on the internet. Jim, I have to say, I listened to your ESPN book on my headphones. I thought you did a damn good job with that. Thanks, bud. Are you an Audible listener? I am, but I gotta say, if I wasn't working so much on these freaking podcasts of yours, I would have more time to listen. So I haven't really gotten into what they have. Okay, so here's the deal. 
Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks and other audio products. When you sign up as an Audible listener, you'll get book credits each month for a low monthly fee, and you can download your choices and access them on your iPhone, your Android device, Fire Tablet, iPod, or even an MP3 player. You can even go through Amazon Echo. And here's my favorite part. Audible helps you listen to more books by letting you switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off. Okay, question. How do you decide, like, what you're going to listen to? I'm either downloading a book I know I want to read or something that's been recommended to me by a friend or Audible. Beyond that, they make it easy to pick up within a category. So, like, for instance, if you want to get healthier, you can search under that category or be inspired, get a better grip on your income, or finally experience some of the great fiction and nonfiction books you haven't had time to read yet. Well, I've got a million books I haven't gotten to. How do I sign up for this thing? Just go to audible.com slash origins or text origins to 500 500 and start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free once you're an audible member you get a credit every month good for any audiobook in their store regardless of price and unused credits roll over to the next month and chris even if you don't like that audiobook you can exchange it no questions asked plus your books are yours to keep with audible you can go back and re-listen anytime even if you cancel your membership that's cool so you could just keep it i like it so once again, that's audible.com slash origins or text origins to 500-500. You can do it with Audible. Dan Patrick attended Eastern Kentucky University on a basketball scholarship and worked as a sports reporter at CNN beginning in 1983. Six years later, he managed to self-agent his way out of there. My contract was running out at CNN. And I was uh, making $50,000, and I was asking for $60,000. And Bill McPhail, one of the legendary people in the world of sports television, was my boss, and, and he was being a negotiator, and he said, I'll give you 55000 And I thought, since I didn't have an agent, that that meant he didn't really want me to stay. So I called up John Walsh. I realized that he was sort of the new man in charge. And I said, do you know who I am? And he said, yes. I said, are you interested in hiring me? And he said, yes. This was a Friday. He said, when can you come up? And I said, when do you want me? And he said, how about next Tuesday? And then I went up that next Tuesday and doubled my salary and started like a week later. And Bill McPhail never spoke to me again after that. (laughs) When you started, what were your days like and who were you working with? Well, they had me observe for, I'm going to guess, over two months. Got to the point where Chris Berman was calling me the Charlotte Observer because that's all I did. I was there to observe. So he would walk into the newsroom and he'd go, Charlotte Observer is here. And all I was doing was watching how they put together the 11 o'clock Sports Center. They didn't realize that Walsh was sort of preparing a palace coup where I was going to end up doing the 11 o'clock with Bob Lee, and I'm watching Berman was there, Tom Meese, Tim Brando. It was sort of the old guard, and I remember just watching in amazement. And was there ever any doubt in your mind that you could do it or couldn't do it? Oh, yeah, I had doubts because I watched how good Berman was. I know people will take shots at Chris in the last, decade or so but when he was doing sports center and he was in his prime and he was on his game he was really good really entertaining and i just remembered thinking could i keep up the energy could i have that much fun because i came from cnn where we weren't supposed to have fun 
my personality was sort of kept under wraps. I didn't know if I could do it that way, where I could be that out front like these guys were. So that was my main concern. And it took me quite a few years before I felt comfortable enough to allow my personality to sort of invade the highlights and um, become more of a personality. Once again, John Walsh. When I got to work at ESPN, and I can never, ever overstate the importance of Steve Anderson in my life at ESPN. He taught me television. He taught me good judgment. He taught me collegiality. He taught me the culture of the place. And one of the things that when I got there the first day, Steve and I were running SportsCenter together. And Steve said, you know, maybe we should look at maybe adding some new on-air people. <laughs> and so uh, this fellow Al Jaffe was doing it. He sat down with Al and... Uh, he came in with some tapes, right? Yeah, I started to work on January 10th. And on January 12th, Al and Steve and I sat down and watched tapes. And the first tape that was popped in was this sportscaster from a local station in Los Angeles named Keith Oberman. And I just said, Al, this is a breeze. Bring him on. Who else you got? You know, let me see some more. I love this. I got an insight into your management philosophy when John Walsh told me that very early on when he was there, he and Al Jaffe showed you a tape of Keith Overman when I guess he was on Channel 11 in L.A., and you were a little worried about whether or not Keith would be a handful to manage, but the bottom line was you let them go ahead and hire him. I'd let them go hire him, but it wasn't going to be my problem. It, it was a little bit of a little to manage. I mean, the guy is going to be a nightmare. I mean, it wasn't a matter of if, it's just about when he was going to explode. And, you know, I said the same thing to my good friend David Hill when he hired Keith Overman. I said, you know, get the separation agreement, you know, the release ready, because it's a matter of when it happens, not if it happens. But Keith was an extraordinary talent. I think the world would be a, a lesser place without his contribution. Keith Overman enrolled at Cornell University when he was just 16 years old and would go on to be called both brilliant and difficult at roughly a dozen media outlets in the decades to come. None would prove more impactful than his years as a sports center anchor. When CNN Sports was it on cable, there had been a vague call to my then agent, Gene Sage, about, you know, if you'd like to be a full-time anchor, we've seen the reporting, it's great. But she said, well, where are you located? And uh, we looked up Bristol, Connecticut on a map. And I said, I don't, how would I get around there? And I think the money was nothing. I mean, literally like forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, maybe less than I was making at CNN. I mean, it was really low. And I just was like, that's where Chris is. Every time I see him, he's, they don't have a teleprompter or air conditioning. Why would I want to do that? So that was the first pass. And then in the 88, seminal year of 88, the negotiations for which actually began in 87, Walsh came in and they said, we want you to co-anchor SportsCenter, our flagship edition at 11 o'clock. And John had done a lot of research on me, but he was missing one salient fact, apart from the point that his monetary offer would come in to be about one-fifth of what Channel 2 was offering, and I didn't have to move, and it was nice and warm, and I was going to be 29 years old and have all the money in the world and single in Southern California. Those things he knew, and he tried to work around it. He said, the key to this is you will get to work with the primary voice in cable sports television, perhaps in cable itself. And I went, oh, no. And I said, who are you talking about? I'm thinking, does it possibly mean Saunders or Bob Lee? or who? No, no. He said, Chris Berman. And I went, 
don't take this the wrong way. I went to school with him and I still have a little ringing in my ear. You went to college with him? I went, no, no, no. I went to high school with him. I've known him since 1971. I love him like a brother. Don't misunderstand me, but you'd have to have a really wide desk. I couldn't sit next to him. He's so loud. Turned out Gary Miller was louder, but I, the idea literally that made it very difficult for me to take ESPN seriously in 1988 was I would have lost all the hearing in my left ear. <laughs> I was like, I did this already. I already worked with Chris. I remember the day when Steve Anderson, who was running SportsCenter at the time, called me in, and he might have been with Bob Eaton or Vince Doria, and they closed the office door and sat me down, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh. And they said, "Uh, we're thinking about bringing in Keith Oberman. And I said, is that why I'm in here? And they said, yes, we want to know if you're okay with it. And I said, absolutely. And they said, are you sure? I said, oh, absolutely. I said, can I go? And they said, yeah. I think they were nervous, you know, because Keith was a singular when he was in uh, Los Angeles, and they didn't know how he would play as a teammate, which I didn't know either. I just knew how good he was and that Bob was going to get off the 11 o'clock, so I was fine with that. How different was it at the beginning for you to be teamed with Keith versus Bob? I mean, they're very, very different people, and they. but in terms of for you, how different was it? Keith was a little tougher transition because he was doing a local sportscast with the energy and punchlines of a local sportscast. I mean, he didn't realize that you had to do it for an hour. And he was used to just hitting home runs and, you know, having one-liners and giving you four minutes of entertainment. And he had to pace himself. So Keith was learning from me and how I paced myself with my energy, with the highlights, And I think after six months is when he said he started to feel comfortable doing it. So it was more of a learning curve for Keith to see what I was doing. And then we sort of meshed together, I think, because of that. It wasn't where I joined Keith and had to keep up with him. He was joining me, and then he was keeping up with me. So I think we formed a good, strong relationship because I helped him in the beginning. Imagine two Dans or two Keiths doing SportsCenter. The company would have gone out of business. We're just different enough as personalities on the air to complement each other, all of it working together. Nobody did SportsCenter to the level that Oberman was able to do SportsCenter. Norby Williamson started as a production assistant at ESPN in 1985 and remains there to this day. He has played a significant role for SportsCenter at various key moments in its history. There's no doubt that his pairing with Dan was sort of one of those magical things, right? But what Keith brought here was an unbelievable sense of elevating highlights to a different level. You know, he would go right and script the entire highlight. Yeah, that was sort of unheard of to me. You know what I mean? Everybody worked off shot sheets and people made notes and, uh, you know, mostly doing the 11, you're not getting a chance to look at it anyway. But for example, a minute 15 day baseball game, he would then go into the script and write unbelievably to like every shot and flush every shot like it was a tracked piece. And that level of detail and that level of creativity was something that just elevated the show and elevated everybody else's game. Memory serves me. And Fuego was the first, though, right? Was that the most meaningful? Yeah, that was just because of Marv Albert. I remember watching the NBA Finals, and Marv kept saying that somebody was on fire. And I remember saying to my cameraman, I said, 
you know, Marv's got to come up with something else than, you know, on fire. And then this guy said, well, he should use the Spanish you know, word for it, and it's El Fuego. We come back out of break, and I said somebody was El Fuego. Well, I did that for a week until a Spanish teacher in Pennsylvania said, I don't think you mean to say somebody's the fire. You mean to say they're on fire. That would be En Fuego. So that's how much thought and research went into that catchphrase. (laughs) The late 80s and early 90s saw the arrival of three key women, Andrea Kramer, Linda Cohn, and Susie Culber. I opened... ESPN's bureau in Chicago in 1989, and I was their first female correspondent as well. And people were like, oh, did you like living in Chicago? I said, I don't know. I was like a flight attendant. I was gone all the time. I was covering events, you name it. And SportsCenter, when you said you were there from SportsCenter, when you were there from ESPN, people really paid attention. The imprimatur of it was very strong. I mean, who, who are we competing with? I mean, when anything happened, you had to turn on ESPN. It was your go-to source. What was it like being a woman at ESPN and working at SportsCenter at that time? Because most of the bench was rather male. (laughs) That's, you know, diplomatically put. You know, my first year, 1989, Phil Jackson had just been hired as head coach of the Chicago Bulls. It was June in Chicago. Oh, by the way, it was 103 degrees. We were doing live shots. We're running here. We're running there. You know, so I was wearing a sleeveless little red dress, very professional, nothing hanging out of it, very professional looking. End of the day, you know, my producer and I, we exhale, you know, after what you feel is a really good day of work. I mean, we just, we did everything. And I, As I always did, I asked for feedback. And so I asked my boss, I said, you know, you have any feedback? And he goes, you were showing your arms. And I said, excuse me? And he said, you're wearing a sleeveless dress. And I go, yeah, it was 103 degrees. We're running around like crazy. He goes, your arms are muscular. You you, you can't do that. I go, you've got to be kidding me. After the day that we put in, this is what you're telling me? And I uttered something that all the women at SportsCenter could thank me for heretofore. You know what I said? The day you buy my clothes is the day you can tell me what to wear. And from then on, I got a clothing deal as did all the other women at Sports Center. Those eight years after when I got there in 92 really burst everything, just skyrocketed. A lot had to do with, I think it started in 94, where, you know, those Sports Center commercials came out. So that really brought another side of our personalities out. And I found like the viewers love that side of it. But they also love the personalities that actually hosted Sports Center. And they knew when Sports Center was on and it was appointment viewing and it wasn't dozens of different people. People had their favorite. My cool moment was then when professional athletes started recognizing me and not only recognizing me, but respected me. Like they already knew that I knew what I was talking about. So that was one of those like, wow, I think I'm doing it right. If those pro athletes already respect me and want to, you know, talk to me, not even when the camera's on, not even when the microphone is there. I knew I was on the right path and I knew my message was getting across and people understood me and got me and realized I was a fan first and also I love sports, not an act. When, you know, guys would come up to me and say, you know, you're the first woman I ever, you know, listened to and watched and enjoyed, you know, hearing my sports reports from. And they always would preface it with take this as a compliment, you know, and I'd like, are you kidding? That's like the best compliment I could ever get. 
Do you happen to remember what years you did SportsCenter? 93 to 95. And then when Sports Night ended, then we were rolled over to SportsCenter. It was a big deal. It was a big deal to be moved over. I was originally moved over to the 6th with Bob Lee, Charlie Steiner, and Robin Roberts. And I do recall my very first show, I was sitting next to Charlie Steiner, and I couldn't breathe. I felt so much nervousness that I just remember thinking, I can't breathe. But I was not staying up late trying to come up with catchphrases or anything else because that wasn't me. I always, I think in a sense, had an advantage from the first time I ever appeared on air as an anchor in West Palm Beach that being a woman in a male-dominated business already made me unique in a way. So I think I probably felt less pressure than a lot of the guys on the air because I just had to be me and I was already going to be different. Very quickly at 11, you and Dan started to garner kind of attention, not just for the broadcast, but because of who you were individually and the dynamic between the two of you. Yes. And that proved to be both good news and bad news for ESPN at that time because in a way, they weren't really set up to <laughs> handle... Why do you get that impression? They, I don't know what you mean. I mean, <laughs> they had gotten kind of used to Berman, and they understood that. Oh, but- everything was fine. There was no friction. What are you, you're reading too many books. Reading that ESPN book. Was there a moment early on when you were kind of watching Keith, and he did something that you realized we're in the deep end of the pool now and uh, we're going to be a little bit more rebellious than you had been prior in your career. The night that he made fun of our boss on the air, Bob Eaton, is when I realized, you know what, I'm with him and we might be the band on the Titanic, but we're going to keep playing. It felt like there was a lot of brush fires every single day. Sometimes he'd start them, sometimes he would add to them, sometimes he would extinguish them. But that was the only part where I was watching him and realizing that going on TV was pretty easy for him. Keith and Dan, you know, that's magic. You can't walk straight that. You can't ever replace that. That's just a chemical reaction that was extraordinary. It's like, well, how in the hell do we, are we on, this is the number one sportscast in the world. And there's no backup mic. And because Dan's fell into his lap, he doesn't know that he's not being heard. I was trying to finesse it. I mean, what you see on that tape is me thinking that my hand is, because I'm looking at the little crap monitors in the desk, I'm getting it as high as possible onto his lapel without being seen. And in fact, the monitor's cutting off the lower six inches of what the viewer at home is seeing. So they're seeing my whole hand in coming in like thing from the Adams family. And then and when he's done and. Dan, a professional, as professional as anybody I know, says at the end of the highlights using, he has all the mics. He has his mic, he has my mic, and there are no backup mics, and he says, KO, like it's my turn, and I have no mic. So I was like, just gesture, like, wait. And then I thought, okay, it's a disaster, turn it into something funny. Not it's a disaster, pretend it didn't happen, which is the way most management anywhere in television wants you to be. It's like, no, no, let people enjoy this and know that we have a silly thing going on. I mean, I think in the time that they were on SportsCenter, we only had one radical disagreement about things. Was that about the big show, the name? That was a part of it, but there were other liberties that were going on. And Like what would have been an example? <laughs> Keith loved to uh, do an over-the-shoulder with uh, President Polk. 
he would just throw that in the middle, and I'm saying, what the heck's going on here? <laughs> and that James was, K. Polk. James K. Polk, right. That was just, it was just uh, Keith's way of saying, hey, do I have your attention? <laughs> and yeah, you did. <laughs> but you told him to cut it out. Yeah, I told him, you know, it was maybe a little too much. And then, you know, there were other things in, in, in periods of excess from time to time, but that was the one time that over a, a weekend that it was, to me, I said to Steve Anderson, I said, you know, maybe getting a little out of hand. But Ultimate, that Monday was one of the few times in your career at ESPN where you kind of got as agitated as you did. Was that probably fair to say, right? Yeah, it was a little bit, you know, over the line. And uh, in retrospect, I probably overreacted a little bit. And uh, I could have probably handled it a little bit better. Something that I had learned was outside of the realm of their experience. Because as great, and I say this legitimately, as great a thinker about sports on television as John Walsh was, his experience with a variety of different inputs and stimuli over the years was not equivalent to mine in terms of television sports. I had learned things meeting Joseph Cotton in the hallway that would have been impossible for him to have ever encountered. And I just, you know, I would take advantage of the fact that, okay, now I know what really pisses them off. Let me see if I can get around it anyway. I think people kind of look to you sometimes to say, hey, are you part of this or can you control this? And yeah. I think that put you in a somewhat of a precarious position. Would you agree? Yeah, it was unfair what they did, but I allowed it to happen, but they couldn't get through to Keith. And I remember being brought in on several occasions where they would say, hey, we need you to ask Keith to do this. Like my bosses <laughs> were afraid of Keith. But then I didn't want to jeopardize my friendship with him. So I would just say to him, hey, Walsh wants me to ask you this just so you know. And I had to distance myself a little bit more from management and move closer towards Keith just because that made the most sense. I mean, that was just part of the functionality of doing a job every day with somebody and you're there 10 hours with them. But I wanted to let him know that this is what they were doing. I didn't want to do anything surreptitiously where I'm sort of guiding him into something and I can go back to my boss and say, hey, look at what I did for you because Keith was way too smart for that. I just never wanted to be part of that. That's what he told you. <laughs> That's what he told them. The reality of the situation was the guy who was more the sort of agent in the equation to try to calm the other one down was me relative to Dan. Dan is Eddie Haskell. I'm largely who I've been depicted as over the years. It's not easy to pin me down as, you know, Peck's bad boy is a pretty good idea. It's like, let me just stir up some crap just for the hell of it. Sure. But Dan is Eddie Haskell. And it's like, oh, it's good to see you today, Mr. Walsh. Oh, Mrs. Walsh, you're looking lovely like this. And then behind the back, Dan is going, did you know what they want to do to the show? He called me in and he said I was being, hey, we were Nick and Hick. And I went, calm down, calm down. And I was actually the guy who made sure we never went off the cliff. I loved living at the cliff and Dan would have been much happier in the center of town, but Dan ran to that cliff at full speed. I don't know how many times I pulled him back off the cliff. I think when we were in TV Guide in 1995 maybe or 96, and it was 10 shows you must watch. And one of the shows was Sports Center with Keith and I. It wasn't Sports Center, it was us too. That was the first time, like, we were shocked. We were like, oh, my God, like, there's people out there watching. 
and we probably got full of ourselves a little bit there, you know, full disclosure. But management was, I think, really nervous where they looked at that. And instead of saying, we have a show, we have a couple of anchors that people outside of the sports world have noticed. Now they would pay $5 million for that or more. But back then, they didn't want that. It was weird. They didn't want personalities, but they wanted people to watch. But you couldn't have one without the other. And uh, I think they were really concerned that Keith and I, and I've said this before, they didn't want us to become another Chris Berman that big, that popular, that they couldn't control. And that's where they were really trying to crack down on us, certainly in Keith. We had the perfect positive storm. We had local sports news dying, cable becoming ubiquitous, highlight availability becoming ubiquitous, ESPN now in every home, not one out of three or one out of right in every bar and every college campus, and the good fortune to have somebody who had the same mindset, if not exactly the same approach, which would have been nightmarish. I never worked with a better teammate, and once we got on the air, it was once in a lifetime. I think the only thing that kind of stuck in our craw was when they referred to their program as the big show. Just on a personal level, the big show. What are we? Chicken salad? Come on. Robin and Bob would say the same thing. Big show. Hey, we're doing pretty well. Our numbers are about the same as theirs, and we're basically being seen by two-thirds of the country instead of all three-thirds of the country because we were on the air, say, at 6 o'clock Eastern, or even 7 o'clock. It was 3 o'clock on the West Coast. I've been on both sides of it, so I've been involved in the show that's getting the more oxygen. At times, I've been in charge of things that, you know, might not be as fashionable. I was always of the mind that if it's deserved, and in this case, it clearly was, you know, that's actually a good internal competition. So, yes, were there rivalries between the 11 and the 6 at that time? Yes, and I was right in the middle of it. Did we take pride in that? Yes, we did. By now, you've heard many talk of the amazing shave they get from Dollar Shave Club razors, especially when used with their Dr. Carver Shave Butter. Now, you can add even more DSC products to your daily routine. Dollar Shave Club makes products for your hair, your face, skin, shower, everything you need. They will have you looking and feeling amazing. And it's all their own original stuff. They only use the finest premium ingredients, and they deliver to you, just like they do their razors. That means no more annoying trips to the store cruising up and down aisles looking at shelf upon shelf of what the hell is that and what do I do with it? You can use Dollar Shave Club for just about everything. They will have you covered head to toe. And with gift memberships and e-gift cards available, DSC can help cover the names of your holiday shopping list too. We want you to love Dollar Shave Club as much as millions do. So we've arranged for you to try your first month of their best razor along with travel sized versions of shave butter, body cleanser, and yes, even wipes for just $5. After that, Replacement cartridges ship for just a few bucks a month. It's the DSC starter set. Get yours for just five bucks exclusively at dollarshaveclub.com slash origins. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash origins. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. If you were on the Bristol campus of ESPN in the mid-1990s and saw Keith Oberman wandering about in a bathrobe and slippers, there'd be no need for concern. The incorrigible Oberman was simply preparing for a new This Is Sports Center commercial. Many ESPNers would be featured in the groundbreaking and highly impactful campaign from Wyden and Kennedy. Impactful not only in cable, but throughout all media. I think that every sports center anchor who was around during your presidency always remembers your famous phrase that if you could uh, get two robots to do the show, you would gladly do it. I think, so, I, I, think I called them cattle. Cattle, right, right. Well, much more affectionate than robots. So what was it like then when all of a sudden we turned the corner on the 90s and it's 1992 and you have Bob Lee, Charlie Steiner, and Robin Roberts on the 6, Keith and Dan on the 11, Craig Kilborn in 2.30, you got Rich Eisen coming up, Stuart Scott, Mike Tariq. All of a sudden, it seemed like the opposite of any kind of talent-free strategy, and it was such a focus on personalities and so talent-driven. Kind of a paradox, isn't it? I think it was less a paradox and more of talking out of both sides of our mouth. The reality of the situation was, Dan would say, I'm making this up, this didn't actually happen. Walsh didn't like uh, what you did on those highlights. I'm supposed to talk to you about it. I said, well, what does he not like? Well, he didn't like you using, uh, calling it the big show. Um, he was really upset about that. He wants you to make clear that this is Sports Center. I went, okay. He said, what are you going to do? I'm not going to tell you. Just tell him, message received, and it won't be a problem. So that night it would be, and then we'll, we'll go to Cleveland where the Cavaliers and Luther Rackley are taking on the Knicks. This is Sports Center. And say that 12 times in every break that night and then put it in the highlights till they came back to him and went, you know, uh, Dan, if you could get Keith to say this is SportsCenter a little less often. And then, of course, they named the advertising campaign based on the fact that I kept saying this is SportsCenter. What was your reaction when they asked you to basically star in this is SportsCenter commercials? <laughs> Wyden and Kennedy, the advertising group that put the campaign together, came up with this idea they were going to do caricatures of who we were. And now they're thrusting me into the middle of some of these hysterically funny spots, which seem to have withstood the test of time. I just went along for it because it was fun. It was a little crazy. I didn't take it too seriously, or certainly myself too seriously. And there I was. I'm, I'm on the Melrose Place set doing stuff. as Bobby the Pool Boy and Follow Me to Freedom and all this other crazy stuff. And then there was Stuart Scott one of the truly singular talents in SportsCenter's history. His ESPN journey was complex and emotional. No one could do the highlights the way Keith did them, and no one could do them the way Craig Kilborn did them. And nobody could, Stuart Scott, you know, Booyah Nation. Right. You know, that was uh, an, you know, an expression of how much of a sports fan he was. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about Stuart particularly during, you know, the 90s when he was doing SportsCenter, because I want to make sure that people understand that it, it was not an easy ride for him. There was a big gap of time that he was put on the bench because I don't think they really knew what to do with him because there was sort of a formula for SportsCenter and Stewart wasn't a formula kind of guy. And that was tough. It was tough and it was frustrating Initially, for the launch of Sports Night, Keith Oberman and I were teamed as the main hosts, and then we had a group of people called Sports Smash Anchors. Stuart was one of them. And then when Keith moved back over to SportsCenter, 
Stuart was then elevated into the co-anchor role with me. And that's where we started this, I think, wonderful relationship and chemistry on the air. We joked that he was my on-air husband, I was his on-air wife, and we were a good balance for each other. And I believe that the original concept of putting Stuart on with Rich on the 1 a.m. or the 2 a.m. or whatever it was then was, well, a little bit of an experiment and somewhat hidden. And let's just see how this goes. Who really knew how it was going to take off? Here's Rich Eisen. At first, it was very difficult to do shows with Stuart. And, you know, even throughout our entire tenure, it was a little bit tough. My wife and I, you know, met there. So we reminisce about it often because she had a front row seat as a producer there to a lot of this stuff. You know, Stu was so energetic and so childlike. And I don't mean that in a bad way, by the way. Childlike, he was just bouncing off the walls that he would frequently jump into my highlight to give his two cents. And here I am trying to communicate in real time to keep up with the video. And Stuart would constantly jump in and knock me off stride every now and then. And that was frustrating because... You know, I would say to him, like, hey, you know, do me a favor. Can you pull back a little bit on that front? And his response would be, well, why aren't you doing that for mine? Like inviting me to do the same. And I'd be like, you do your thing. I can't do your thing because you are who you are and and I am who I am. And occasionally that would be a level of frustration because he was so energetic. But it worked. And it worked literally 90% of the time. And we would have a blast when it really clicked. And then that eventually led to SportsCenter no longer being about highlight-driven shows, but about why something happened. It was certainly for Stuart, maybe sometimes painful and frustrating, but he had so much conviction about his approach. He was not going to be deterred. And he wasn't going to be anybody but himself. And I think he had a sense of the bigger picture of, this is what I feel, this is what I was meant to do, I'm not going to let anybody deter me from that. And what's great is that he did have the strength, the heart, the conviction to stick with that, even when others, (laughs) when management at ESPN, maybe just didn't understand. It absolutely bothered him. The story I like to tell is that I made a Seinfeld reference many times, because again, this is the late 90s, And I make a Seinfeld reference, and we go to a commercial break, and he would ask me what I meant with that. And I said, that's a Seinfeld reference. He goes, brothers don't watch Seinfeld. (laughs) That's what he said. And I thought to myself right then and there, what must he feel when he's making an LL Cool J reference? And me, I would say, I don't know what that is. Or, Or other people would be like, don't say LL Cool J references because the Caucasian viewing audience are confused by that. And his response is, well, what about the African-American audience that has no idea about the soup Nazi reference I just dropped? So why is it fine for you to do that, but it's not fine for me to interlace my highlight style with the latest rap lyric? And how did you guys settle that? I kept doing my Seinfeld references, and he kept doing his references, and it worked. He was always true to himself, always. And occasionally, you know, like his nieces or nephews or cousins would furnish him with the latest 
pop culture line that was on fire from the hip hop world, and he would incorporate that in. Once he had already reached a certain type of popularity, my concern for him was, okay, are you carving yourself such a deep niche that where do you go next? And then what I came to learn was, if you were out at an event with him, then you got it. When you actually saw people react to him out in an environment at a sporting event, you saw the, the appreciation and how far his reach was. And he gave a voice to so many who hadn't really been represented like that before. And I think he knew that his approach, I think, reached across race. Man, I miss him. Every time I reminisce about him, I miss him. You know, I mean, his voice right now with what's going on, I mean, he would be a very important voice that's missing right now. Very important. By the year 2000, the first international edition of SportsCenter had launched, reaching 2.4 million homes in Brazil, followed in 2004 by an even more memorable SportsCenter Global Edition from Kuwait for an audience of U.S. Armed Forces. On August 11, 2008, SportsCenter debuted live weekday morning editions from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Here's Scott Van Pelt, who joined SportsCenter's ranks in 2001. What did it mean to you when you first got assigned to SportsCenter? Scared to death. Scared to death because I've told this story many times. I had this post-it note that still sits on my desk right now in my home office here. It says, I will never work at ESPN. And I signed that when I worked at the Golf Channel because a producer who was there told me relatively early on in my time that, oh, you're going to end up at ESPN and be on SportsCenter. And I said, I'll never work at ESPN. And part of it was thinking, I don't want to have to try to figure out all the ways to be clever and have catchphrases and all the rest. And then an equal part of that was just not believing you'd ever get a chance to do that. Why would I be given that opportunity? Why would I be good enough to do that? So there's a bit of self-doubt that's involved. And so then you get there and you feel this sense of trying to live up to the past and then trying to create your own space. And how many times am I supposed to try to be funny, not that anyone's telling you you're supposed to, but yet you've seen others do it. So you kind of want to try your hand at it. And I realized over time that it wasn't necessary to try so hard to be clever or cute or whatever. And I kind of settled into doing whatever I felt like I wanted to do. The word I would use to describe my maiden voyage, my debut on SportsCenter is disaster. Capital letters, bold, underline, asterisks around it, disaster. I was not set up to succeed in that situation. Basically, it was the first day of the men's NCAA tournament. So that first Thursday of tournament games, I hosted the 6 p.m. Sports Center. And usually you're on ESPN News for several weeks, a month, to really just get going and get warmed up, and then we'll see from there. And for whatever reason, I can't remember, they had me on that. I knew I wasn't ready. But do you say no? Of course you don't say no. You say absolutely, and you jump in, and you try to dig up out of your soul or whatever got you here in the first place and pray. And I did, but none of it worked. <laughs> but literally, it was, you know, it was a producer who, you know, just wasn't the best communicator. And it was the first day of the tournament. So an hour show turned into two hours and 45 minutes of unscripted TV. And when that's your first time on, as Jay said the other day, even, he's like, that was such a crazy difficult show for him. And he'd been there for four years. So, um, Needless to say, I walked out of the studio afterwards and cried on Jay's shoulder, whom I had just met. So that was a great introduction. 
And afterwards, I was brought into one of the executive's office, and I just thought, okay, this is it. <laughs> you know, one and done. <laughs> they will let me out of this contract or kick me out of this contract, and I'll find another job and career. And it was Mark Gross. And to this day, I'm so thankful because what he said that day after my disaster is kind of the only thing I was able to hang on to. And he just said, I am sorry. We set you up to fail, and I'm sorry. And I was like, yes, <laughs> and fighting back the tears. But those words for him to be accountable for, you know, the people that made those decisions beneath him that day was huge. And he didn't have to do that. So I hung on to those words saying, okay, so you fell on your face. It stinks. You don't get that ability to make that first impression ever again. And even though it wasn't my fault, okay, right? But I've never forgotten that he said that and he owned it. And I've thanked him a million times because if no one had, I don't know that I would have ever been able to recover. But from there, everything changed. In 2007, Dan Patrick announced that he would be leaving ESPN. You would think that you got to a certain point where they would have wanted to hold on to you. And I remember one negotiation. In fact, Mark Shapiro repeated it to you in the book. And that was when he told my agent, Steve Lefkowitz, he's over the hill and he'll never get another job. And this is my boss. And I'm thinking, what? Like, it was just foreign to me. I went, I can't process this. Like, is he telling me the truth? And I took less money. I think I took a pay cut. And I probably won the sports Emmy that year or the following year. <laughs> like, it was that crazy. <laughs> And so they fed, they fed my insecure. I was the first cable sportscaster to win a sports Emmy. And it was a really big deal. At least I thought it was. And management didn't celebrate it. You know, so then I'm thinking, like, what am I missing here? And then my wife said, well, don't expect them. I mean, they don't care about you. You're just a vehicle. You're just somebody who's going to be there. Then they'll replace you one day. And I'm thinking, no, I'm on the 11 o'clock sports channel. Like, I'm trying to validate who I am to my wife, and my wife understood exactly what the hell was going on. They didn't care. I hope you take this salary, and then we'll replace you one day with Rich Eisen or Stuart Scott. So I was naive with that. Talk for a moment about how you got up, because given what you've done and what you're doing now, I think you get the last laugh, Dan. You're entitled to that. What's pretty intimidating, but... I realized that having four kids, I was working second shift, I was trying to make them like me. And I would volunteer to do other things. And I was working radio and TV, and I was looking for acknowledgement. I was insecure, Keith had gone, and I was sort of floating through there. And then I remember I was missing things at home. I didn't think I was a good person. I didn't think I was a good employee. And I started to go, I've outgrown this place or it's outgrown me, but I'm going to have to go. And it started with me saying when I was renegotiating my contract, I said, can I do my radio show from home on Friday? Oh, no, you can't. You got to be here. You got to be here for morale. I said, but you won't even know the difference. I've done the show from my studio at my house. I didn't do Sports Center on Friday. No, because if you do it, then everybody else is going to want to do it. It's going to be precedent setting, and then, you know, you're going to have somebody else who wants to do it. And I went, what if I did it once a month from home? No, no, you can't. How about I do a show, and you see if you can tell if I'm in Bristol or I'm at my house? No, no. And I walk into Norby Williamson's office, and he gave me a take it or leave it. And I just remember 
my wife's words came right into my head that I was going to miss everything. Like the kids were going to be out of the house. And I said, I, I'm going to leave it. And I just remember the weight that was lifted off of me and realizing my priorities were so screwed up, but it was my wife saw what was happening to me and realized that there's something better. She, even when I called her, I said, I didn't resign. She goes, good. I said, no, I'm done with ESPN. Good. We'll sell the house. She had the perspective. You know, I, I was full of myself. This is about me. I'm, I'm a sports center anchor. And she was saying, no, this is about family. This is about raising a family, being a husband, having kids. And I was so lost with it. And thank God I was given a take it or leave it. And thank God I just I had the guts to say, I'm going to leave it. It changed me. It saved me. It really did. In 2014, ESPN opened Digital Center 2, the DC2, a nearly 200,000-square-foot complex of five studios, including a shiny new home for SportsCenter, boasting every conceivable technological advancement. For all that, there were concerns that the enormous new sets, rather than the anchors, would become the stars of the show. SportsCenter now had up to 12 airings daily, with the average highlight lasting 50 seconds and 50 people working on each show. We don't have any say in it. Let's face it, it looks like a spaceship if you've ever been in it. Moving parts, bright lights. I've never have been a big fan of the actual host and anchor so far away from the camera where the graphic or the piece of video makes the anchor like this tiny dot. That's part of the connection. You need to be like up close. That viewer needs to see you and have a, you know, kind of like an eye-to-eye connection and not be distracted from that. It creates an emotional connection with people, and I think it's very significant for its success. That's just the look I'm talking about, because I still feel and always have that it's not about the anchor or the act or the catchphrase. It's about the story. It's about the athlete. It's about the team. It's about the game. And it's putting all of your energy into that. The more digitally centric sports center also brought a new leadership. Rob King, an ESPN insider with experience in digital and print media, now had to figure out sports center's role in the smartphone age. We took a lot of time learning how to use the place. So there was a lot of new toys. So we dove in hard. So we knew from the outset that it was an opportunity to do sports in a way that really felt big. We were, yes, experimenting with screens, experimenting with the space. From an observer's point of view, if I were to characterize the early parts of those days, it seemed like there was initially a fascination with the new toy, with DC2, the studio. So is it fair to say that there was an initial period where DC2 was more of a star than, let's say, the anchors themselves even? Well, it was a star, all right. I mean, look, we did a pretty thoughtful thing, I believe, which is we actually did some research, fan research, some eye tracking, just to figure out whether our initial premise, which was that we could have our talent on camera and use the screens to have content playing behind them and sort of keep that all in one shot. We just wanted to make sure that our talent was still resonating with audiences. And the eye tracking told us, no, people were looking at the screens. So, you know, relatively short order, we started working with our directors and with our operations folks to shoot the sets differently and to position our folks differently. The landscape of hosting late night had changed dramatically. Uh, Jimmy Fallon had just taken over for Jay Leno and Stephen Colbert had just stepped in for David Letterman and 
Uh, Trevor Noah just stepped in for John Stewart, and there was kind of an open playing field there. And we had somebody in Scott Van Pelt that we felt with the right kind of show built around him could actually make a difference. Did you feel when you came back to Sports Center to do this that there was a lot of pressure on you, not just in terms of making the show work, but also in terms of whether or not the franchise itself could thrive in such a uh, a new technological kind of world? And the second thing is, if that's the case, was that part of the reason why you decided to do it? Okay, first part, not really, because it was more than anything, it felt like a flyer. You know, it felt like it's midnight. You can bring some of the elements from radio to this space. You can be yourself. And it's interesting. I mean, you know this place as well as anybody. I'm kind of looking at them, and I'm not believing what I'm hearing, right? It's like, wait, you're going to give me the keys to the car? This car? And I don't have to be back at any point? Because for so long, we were really discouraged from being ourselves and having an opinion because of the whole idea of being right down the middle of journalists. It was a real sea change to be encouraged to try that. And then as far as the second part goes, what was encouraging to me and exciting to me about that was the idea that I did get to try that and that I truly have been empowered and encouraged at every turn to just try more things and don't be beholden to the idea of what that sports center that I grew up with, because as we all know, that world doesn't exist any longer. So it's also daunting because it's like, okay, well, how are you going to fill it? So that's why I wanted Midnight, because I wanted to have the results of games. That matters the most to me. I'm a games guy. I like what happened. I like the results and the scores and what happened. Why was it important? At Midnight, I've got all those things. I don't have to create out of nowhere. That's difficult to do every day. Radio teaches you that. You know, Filling that space is, is a real challenge. I'm more optimistic than pessimistic. I mean, listen, I'm not going to ignore things that are negative just because I want to walk around and sing happy songs and blow rainbows and kisses to the world. Like that's not what I'm trying to do, but I also don't wake up every day and have my agenda set by who screwed up, you know, who can we blame for the result of yesterday's game? Like there's currency in that, you know, if it's who do we get to blame, who choked, who did this, who did that. I'm trying to celebrate the accomplishments of the people that are, remarkable day in and day out. If there's an ethos, I suppose that's it. You've just signed a new deal, a multi-year deal. How are you going to define success? Sanity? <laughs> can, we, can we start with that? Maintaining some grip on that? I mean, I want to keep enjoying what I do, and I do right now. I want to continue to approach this with the same enthusiasm for the conversation and the revelation on a daily basis of who wins the games. I mean, I, I will consider this a success if I don't wake up dreading process of doing it. And you know, my dad worked as a plumber. He wore boots to work. So I'm hesitant to ever talk about how hard I work because he worked. Okay. But doing a show by yourself where you're writing and doing the heavy share of lifting is taxing in, in some regards. And so success will be does the energy to do this and the enthusiasm to do this remain through the balance of it? And from a ratings perspective and whatever else, I mean, I don't concern myself with it other than to say, I mean, if we fell off a cliff, then that would be obviously a big problem. So as long as it doesn't wane and I don't become disenchanted and it's evident to the viewer that I'm just not interested, and I owe it to everybody not to let that happen, so I won't. 
but that'd be great. Be great to get to that part and still feel like it was relevant and that people were interested. I love that you asked me that because honestly, I've never even tried to articulate it. It was just a bunch of verbal vomit there, but that's the best I've got. As the current incarnation of Sports Center personalities infuse the show with their own on screen and online identities, so it also works the other way around. The network struggled with how much to let anchors of the show voice their own opinions or represent the network as a monolith, and to what degree they can stamp a broadcast with their own personalities. And ironically, in the Sports Center mobile app, fans could follow only highlights for teams or sports they were interested in, effectively creating their own Sports Center. Here's Jamel Hill, who joined ESPN in 2006 as a columnist and became a Sports Center anchor on the show SE6 with Michael Smith in February 2017. Initially, when the idea was first brought to us, we both laughed. Because <laughs> we were like, have you seen our show? Like, we're not sports center anchors. We don't do highlights. <laughs> like, that's not what we do. So we thought it was, in a lighthearted way, I mean this. Like, we thought it was kind of absurd. <laughs> and so, but once it was made clear to us in those initial conversations, like, that they wanted us to be us and to do a lot of the things that we did on His and Hers, but just do them at 6 o'clock, on a you know bigger platform where we'd have you know more support and then it was like oh yeah we're in we had great loyalty among a lot of viewers going from PTI into sports center not the least of which was very strong african american community we spent some time you know with some focus groups at the outset of just exploring the idea around michael and jamel we noticed that a real strength of theirs, which is also very important to us, is the ability to set a welcome table for guests. And, you know, it's not a surprise that that very first day of their show, Isaiah Thomas of the Celtics was willing to come down from Boston to do the show. So these are all factors that led us to try something as different as SE6. Here's Michael Smith. There was a, an interview in a local paper New Orleans Times picking you, and that was that would be my senior year in high school. And it asked me, you know, what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I did answer Sports Center anchor. For an academic like me, it was the equivalent of saying I want to play in the NFL. Yeah, I want to be a Sports Center anchor. I still remember, like our first show, I kind of did have that moment where I was just like, I cannot believe I'm actually hosting the Six O'Clock Sports Center. This is a career turn I never expected ever in a thousand years. So. It was a little surreal, and to realize that you were, you know, sitting in the seats that Stuart Scott and Rich Eisen and Overman and Patrick, like all these iconic broadcasters that have been there, and Bob Lee, that you were a part of a tradition and a legacy, and it was something kind of bigger than you, that that was just extremely humbling. And so what was it like when they came to you and said, we want you guys to co-host the 6 o'clock Sports Center? It really took a while to sink in. And I remember I'd had a flood in my home, so I was staying in a hotel for about two weeks around the time when it happened. And I remember, I feel like it was Variety may have been put it out first. You know, and I remember going to the hotel room, my wife was gone, my kids were at school, and I sat down, and for one of the only times in my life, I allowed myself to be in the moment and process and consider what it meant, and I broke down in tears. You know, I just broke down crying because I was like, wow, I finally arrived. I finally made it. I'm finally, I've reached the mountaintop. Do you think they really spent a lot of time watching his and hers? Do you think they knew what they were getting? Hell no. But I said the same thing. 
<laughs> and, I, and I'd ask myself the same thing. We had a lot of reservations about whether or not they truly knew what they were signing up for. And I don't think they truly examined what they were asking us to do because very early on, it was pretty clear that we were too far off the reservation, if you will. Before we took over the six, and you would know this better than me, so you can tell me if I'm totally off base here. Sort of the narrative around SportsCenter was, oh, highlights are dead. Nobody's watching highlights. Who cares about highlights? That was the narrative. And what we discovered as we've evolved is that a lot of people, one of the first things they say to us, like, where are the highlights? Some people, even if they've seen it a thousand times, they still want to see it a thousand and one times. Yeah, you know, SportsCenter, despite the fact it's been on air forever, now this next iteration, we're kind of like in the awkward phase. You know, we're hitting puberty. You know, voice is changing a little bit, more aware of ourselves in many regards, and we're just trying to figure out the best way that we can serve sports fans. What I do think is overstated is this notion that because people can see highlights anywhere that they don't care about highlights, I actually find that not to be true. I think great video is important, and I think that there are many, many ways to tell narratives with highlights that ESPN in general will always excel at. When Norby came in to supervise the show, you know, I'm reminded of that scene in La Femme Nikita where that cleaner comes in. It was like they're sending, they're, they're sending in the guy who's supposed to uh, fix it all up. What were your thoughts when, uh, when you heard about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I was a little surprised. It caught me off guard because it didn't feel like we had Rob King that long. <laughs> and so, yeah, there is some sense of, I guess, trepidation because it, it reminded me of when you're a quarterback and all of a sudden the offensive coordinator changes. You're like, ooh, well, what system is he going to run? And uh, what does this mean for me? I'll be honest, I didn't anticipate that it would be as extreme. The first two weeks of Norby's presence on the show coincided with Jamel's suspension, if I'm not mistaken. I think the first day she was suspended was his first day in charge of us. We couldn't really get going because personally I'm dealing with my friend and colleague suspension and then her reintroduction and then and then obviously John Skipper's resignation. I mean, it's just so much that's gone on throughout this process to further complicate it. But it was very frustrating. And I, look, I think most people who know me and who pay close attention could tell how frustrated I was behind the scenes and on camera. There was a time we weren't even talking to each other anymore. Like, no more Michael and Jamel. Not less, not here and there. No more Michael and Jamel talking. No more of their commentary. It's just strictly live shots and analysts. That's what pissed me off so much. I'm like, so wait a second. You all acknowledge that one of the strengths that we have going for us as a show is Michael and Jamel's chemistry. Michael and Jamel don't fucking talk to each other? Like, how does that make sense? We knew we were going to get shit out the gate. Then we were trying to do, we knew we were going to get shit, but we weren't built to take it. And immediately we started pushing the panic button. And instead of saying, no, this is the vision for this show. This is what we're doing. This show is about Michael and Jamel and their opinions and their chemistry, and they're going to do SportsCenter their way. Instead of sticking to that vision, we immediately tried to merge two things when, you know, look, I think Henry Ford said, if I asked people what they wanted, they'd say faster horses. The viewer wants consistency. And they would have learned. Maybe I'm naive about this, Jim. I might be naive. I believe they truly would have learned to like it if we would have learned to do it better. Do you think that those changes, particularly given the timing that it came so soon after Jamel's suspension, do you think those changes were done to improve the show or 
to almost mollify Burbank about Jamel's recognition factor and reducing her presence and lowering the temperature, all things involved with Jamel. I think it's safe to say that those two things in the minds of the powers that be are not mutually exclusive. That I think they're one and the same. I think improving the show and adjusting the narrative or quieting the noise or maybe making people forget who they were watching. I don't know. I think those two things are one and the same. And they got what they wanted, which was Michael and Jamel being muted. And that frustrated the shit out of us. And then there was one. Hill went on a vacation and got downright honest with herself about her many thoughts on her involvement with the show. Her takeaway was clear. She'd had enough. You know, I said to Norby, like, I know what Sports Center needs to be, but I know what I need to be, too. And I don't think those two things are on the same page. And he understood that, and, and everybody did. We never wanted to be, you know, Sports Center anchors. There were a lot of other things we wanted to do at ESPN. We never imagined ourselves in this role. I could have sat in that chair and nobody would have been any of the wiser and been unhappy, but I felt like it was a waste of my time and talent and it was a waste of their money. How do you put the past behind you and how do you greet the future given the fact that all that's gone on and that this is very different than what you set out to do originally? You know, I'm so glad you you asked me that because a lot of people have said, what's Mike going to do? Mike's going to do Mike. I'm going to do me. I'm going to do the same shit I've been doing for the last... 14 years at ESPN and it served me rather well I may say and it's just like nobody was more frustrated by the evolution of this show over the last few months than I was that's no secret but what Jamel's departure allows me to do is close the book on that and frankly I got unfinished business I'm not leaving this property with the perception that it's in shambles for her part Hill has three more years on her contract with ESPN and will spend a great deal of her time working for the undefeated the company's site which marries sports, race, and culture. She's counting on having a great deal more editorial freedom. Do you feel like you have a different margin for her now on social media as well? I don't. <laughs> to be honest, you know, I, look, I get it. There is temptation to believe because I'm, you know, now with a property that is about sports and culture that, you know, suddenly, I don't know, people are expecting me to, to have like some political hot takes that I've been sitting on <laughs> that I can suddenly launch. Eh, kind of not the way this thing works, okay? My check is still signed by ESPN, <laughs> all right? And the policy applies to everybody. It is not the Jamel Hill policy. It is the social media policy for the company. So if people are having this expectation, then, you know, I hate to disappoint you, but I find that when sports fans say they want sports commentators to stick to sports or they don't want politics in sports, what they're really saying is that, oh, I know all these problems are going on in the world and they're real problems, but I feel like I get enough of that. When I watch sports, I just want to watch sports, and that's just unrealistic. And typically the people who say that are people who have not been subjected or not vulnerable to some of those weightier issues that do collide with sports and so it's easy for them to say that because it doesn't affect them and those people don't understand that it's no turning that off in its current incarnation 18 million people watch sports center each day and nearly double that follow sports center on twitter do you think you would be happy if you're working there now i'd be old okay age notwithstanding <laughs> no i don't know it was a freer and simpler time we did our job and went home when i got there it wasn't a big deal It was the sports cable station in Connecticut. The next generation who followed us in to ESPN, they arrived 
at a big deal. I'm not sure, having lived the life I have lived to this point, it would be as interesting or as gratifying as it was then when I showed up. I was lucky. I kind of like was able to parachute in, at least to me, ESPN's greatest days. We had Aaron Judge in the studio recently, and he walked in and his eyes got big. So people who've you know, seen a lot of things and aren't been impressed by much walk in that studio and are impressed. I still walk in every morning and I take a deep breath because first of all, I made it somehow. <laughs> you know, as a 12-year-old kid saying this is what I wanted to do was to work at ESPN. Is there any way that you can imagine doing SportsCenter now? Well, that's a hypothetical, and of course that's a landmine. But I watch SportsCenter now, and I see a show that is a cultural landmark. It's the 1A brand of this network that is aggressively managed, that uses the E of Entertainment and Sports Programming Network much more and more with more cross-cultural references and, and playing to that. And I understand and I applaud the necessity to do that in a marketplace where the choices are so many, the platforms are so many, and we have a position of primacy. But even at that, I mean, you know, cord cutting, everything else, all the other challenges that, that face everyone in the media, you're not scrambling, but you're aggressively reassessing and planning every step of the way. With that as a given, I don't know. The bitter enders who tend to be more closer to your age and my age who say, I wish I had my old Sports Center back. I think there's a lot of romantic recall. Be careful what you wish for. Sports Center's future is, for the first time in ESPN's history, no longer certain. There is no law, agreement, 11th commandment, nor other stipulation that says Sports Center must remain on ESPN's programming grid. Times change, right? Ask a few key individuals involved with ABC's wide world of sports. They thought that would run forever. What remains certain, though, is SportsCenter's pivotal role in fueling ESPN's growth over its first several decades, from financial, branding, and journalistic points of view. Apart from any rights acquisition, it was the most critical creative enterprise in ESPN history. John Skipper knew this all too well. He began his presidency injecting more editions of SportsCenter into the firmament and sparing no expense trying to create yet one more banner error for the franchise. And in his waning months, he made it clear to two of SportsCenter's biggest stars, Keith Oberman and Dan Patrick, that he would love to investigate ideas to get each of them back into the fold. He did this individually, never collectively, and there was no plan whatsoever to reunite them. Patrick, for his part, was interested in talking further about radio possibilities, but nothing else. Oberman, having had enough of politics after his successful GQ commentaries, has started to contribute stories on what is now a limited basis. ESPN will be lucky to have either or both in any ways, shapes, or forms. After all, if SportsCenter is going to endure, it will need all the help it can get. For Origins, this is Jim Miller. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.